Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone whose New Year's resolution is to continue being as perfect as I am. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today is the final episode for Rico Decode for 2019, and we're doing something a little different. We're going to be recapping our favorite moments for the show this year and talking a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes. And so, thusly, joining me in our New York studio is my executive producer, Erica Anderson. Hi, Kara. Hey, how you doing? And joining us from San Francisco is my longtime producer, Eric Johnson. Eric, hello, say hello. Kara, big year for you. Big how year. How do you feel? Good. It's a good year. It's going to be better. I don't, I, I lower, look, I never look backwards, my friends. I'm doing this as a favor to you because I look for like I don't what who did I interview? Your I audience is gonna like this episode of favorite. They of are, us. yeah, it is. But I'm just saying, it, been there, done that. But I'm willing to talk about it. But I, it's been a really good year. But I'm excited about what's coming. So we will do this. We will reminisce. We will reminisce. We don't have Thank any liquor. Thank you for indulging us. That's okay. But I, we don't have any liquor. That's one of my things that I'm really sit upset around with. a fire and talk about. I've the got year. a coffee and like one of these protein bars, a Go Macro Macro yeah. bar. So well, here we are. Over in the magic, just let people pretend you're sitting by the fire with you know. A hot toddy. Do we have wassail? I don't even know what that is. Okay, we're going to take turns sharing our favorite moments because this is my show and I shall start. I think one of my favorite interviews, very similar to the year before with Nicole Wong, who was a, a lawyer for Twitter and Google, is someone you don't know very well at the beginning of the year. Now she's gotten a lot more acclaim. Shoshana Zuboff. Um, she's a professor at Harvard and she wrote a book called Surveillance Capitalism. Let us go into the clip first, then we'll talk about it. So we have an institutional disfiguring of now these huge asymmetries of knowledge and power, which are antithetical to democracy. Yes. You cannot have a well-functioning democracy with massive inequalities of knowledge and power. And so that's eroding democracy from the big institutional level. Mm -hmm. But now from the individual level, from the inside out, the fact that our autonomy is compromised, that these things are happening outside of our awareness, that they can take hold of our behavior and shift it and modify it in ways that we don't know. Make it very noisy. This is eroding our moral autonomy, our ability to claim our future for our own agency, for our own decisions, for our own choices, our own promises of where I want to go and how I want to get there. So essentially, we're stupid from the top and 
we have no choice and we're being spied on from the bottom. Exactly. And, and being pushed around so, without our knowledge. So these qualities of Stupid and manipulated is moral what autonomy and, mm-hmm. and uh, individual sovereignty, these are the elements that are the constituent forces of democracy. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine a democratic society without imagining people who have these qualities. Right. So we're getting eroded from the inside and from the outside. And when we see something like Cambridge Analytica, which is, you know, has been a big aha for a lot of people all mm-hmm. over the world, what we see is this erosion in play using exactly the methodologies of surveillance capitalism, just slightly pivoting them toward political outcomes instead of commercial outcomes, using them to change our behavior. And the only way they can do that is by mustering these huge asymmetries of knowledge, turning that into power to intervene on us and modify Mm -hmm. us and control us and manipulate us. As I said, you know, I brought a lot of really well-known people onto the show, but but Shoshana was really interesting because she works for the, the business school at Harvard, and her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for Human Future, The New Frontier of Power, was really the tone for the whole year because this was an idea about tech responsibility, tech uh, accountability, and one of the things she articulated really well was the idea that inequality isn't just about what you have, it's about what you know, and about the, the uses of that information, that data, by John clients like Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and they know a lot about you. And, you know, a lot of what she said was very sensible, but people aren't thinking about it, how much they're taking advantage of us and how we are we are the, the fodder for this new information age. So I have a question for both of you, which is that, do you think that you, uh, your trust, your, your willingness to trust uh, in these companies, has it changed since the start of the year? I mean, is it, this interview, I think, really set the tone because Mm -hmm. it articulated what a lot of people are feeling, which is like, wait a minute, you know, I can't really be trusting these companies anymore. And Kara, I suspect that you never trusted anyone. I never trusted them. I never, I met them before. Um, But but Erica, how about you? Oh, less, far less. Well, I left tech in the early part of the year. And I think as the year has gone on, I've decrease the amount of ambient listening that can occur on my phone. But it's hard to do that, I mean, because it's always doing it. And I think you don't realize how much these companies are surveilling you. And we talk a lot about China and the terrible things they're doing. And by the way, they are terrible. But the fact of the matter is there's so much going on in this country without your consent. You don't opt into it. You don't give consent. And your stuff is being used. And the, the expression I've used a lot this year is the idea that you're a cheap date to these companies. Like, you think you're getting, okay, you get a map or you get a... Uh, whatever, a chat. Free email. Free email, all this stuff. And you're like, oh, and they and they make you feel like, oh, we're so good to give this to you, but they're getting so much more in return. Remember the interview you did with Marguerite Vestager when she this year when she said, Do you want the convenience or the good? And with, right. you know, Europe, they mm-hmm. want the good they want a good life. They would take that over the convenience. So that was her perspective. And for us, we've really just sunk into the convenience. Like I'm willing to have my phone or my home Google Home or Alexa listening to me at all right. times so that it can pick up my trigger word. Well, it's not just convenience, too. It's like inertia. Like, I, I deleted my Facebook account this year, and I got to say, like, I don't miss it. Like, I don't, it hasn't really negatively impacted my life at all. But I think it's just the default for so many people where it's just like, this is what I do. This is just, you know, I'm I'm too busy with other stuff to think about, you know, changing my, my habits. I do think people enjoy some of it. I think people do. I enjoy Instagram every time I use it. I just, it's just, it's like a popcorn or something. Yeah. And so it's not that some of these products aren't fun. I love Twitter, as everybody 
knows. Um, mm-hmm. And I really enjoy it. It's like television for me, you know, or new, and I like news, and so it's news-oriented. So some of the stuff, you do get a, a good thing out of it or a value for you out of it, but I do think a lot of it appeals to your base instincts. For one is fear, fear of missing out, you know, envy, all kinds of bad things. But at the same time, they do give you some entertainment value. I was laughing the other day about something on Twitter. I can't remember what it was, but it was what about, great. What about Shoshana made you want to interview her? Because I think what's so important about this interview to me is that you are finding people who can shed light on what's happening in tech who aren't necessarily inside of tech because they're right. not going to tell you the story straight. So Because she was sensible. Because she was sensible. When I read that book for the first time, I was like, yes, exactly. This is she was, she was making sense out of things. And she wasn't being sort of, you know, we had Roger McNamee on too, and who, he has a very strong point of view, and I like what he mm-hmm. has to say. But she was just sort of clinical in it. Like, here's what they're doing. Let me explain. And she didn't, she wasn't angry. She wasn't, she just was, she did a really nice job of making her case in a really cogent and non-dramatic way. And I think she, you can't deny how sensible she is. That's what I liked about it. Her voice is soothing. Yeah, it's, it's like she's like narrating the apocalypse in like the most <laughs> relaxing way, you know. <laughs> if anyone needs a sensible listen over the break, of Shoshana Zubas. <laughs> narrating the apocalypse <laughs> comfortably. Anyway. In that last clip, Shoshana mentioned Cambridge Analytica, the big data privacy scandal that hit Facebook in 2018. For one of my favorite moments, I wanted to talk about the reporter who broke a lot of major news about the scandal, Carol Cadwallader from The Guardian. You interviewed her, Kara, this summer in London. And one of the things that I loved about this interview was that it really explained what goes on behind the scenes when an investigative journalist is working on a story this explosive. We always knew this story was going to be devastating to Cambridge Analytica. I had no idea of the scale of impact this would have on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Really didn't see that coming at all. And in many ways, it was the way that Facebook reacted and responded, which was the sort of killer... I I agree, I agree. It kind of blew itself up on our doorstep. Well, their argument initially was aggressive, and then it was like, we didn't know. Like, I think we didn't know is their basic argument. But they spent sort of three days (laughs) figuring that out. So, I mean, what was extraordinary was that all three through this period, I've been writing story after story about, you know, my stories about Cambridge Analytica, even whilst I'm working with Chris, they've they've carried on. And, you know, whilst we've had this threat of being sued, we wrote a 35-page legal letter back to Cambridge Analytica. It took our lawyers a week. I mean, this was a huge effort from the Guardian News Organisation to keep going with this story. And at no point did Facebook ever say, oh, well, actually, okay, this is what happened. We know this, you know, we're sorry. There was, we just never got a comment. And then, you know, we go through, because our libel laws here are so much yeah. stricter, it's so much more difficult to publish this stuff. So and we, have, we go through, a, you know, a very kind of strict protocol before publication, everything in writing to them. So we put in our questions on the Monday and we'd had an agreement, New York Times and who I also did the story with and with Channel 4 News that we would put in our questions on the same day. Facebook, they didn't respond for three, four days. And then I get a call from them and they said, we're going to be sending you a response, a written response tomorrow, but just to let you know that we're, you know, we're very, very categoric about this. This is not a data breach. (laughs) Just so well, you that's know. What they, they kept saying that. Yeah, they not, kept on saying. No one says it was. <laughs> they kept on saying. I remember they called them like, breach. no one said it was. It's <laughs> no. not a breach. It's I know. A, I know. I know. We, 
we, we were still figuring out what the headline was at that point. And I got off the phone and my colleague Emma Graham Harrison, who I wrote the news stories with, she said, what did they say? I said, well, they're just, I said, oh, it was a bit weird. They sort of said, yeah, we're going to write to you, but they're very, very clear it's not a data breach. And she was like, hmm, data breach, hmm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that became the headline. Yeah. So, and, it, and but then, but then, you know, the next day it was this, it was, I couldn't believe it. You know, it'd been so hard to get through the, the, the hurdles with Cambridge Analytica to get into this position to publish day before publication. Facebook, having had this information now, remember this, for mm-hmm. more than two years, it then writes this legal, legal sends us an elite, they hired these fancy lawyers in London to write us a letter, didn't do this to the New York Times, obviously, and saying, you know, actually, this is highly defamatory and, you know, we will take legal action if you persist in, you know, publishing these falsehoods. Mm-hmm. And... You know, and so it spent, went into another panic, you know. So the, the day before publication, we're in these intense legal meetings. We're ringing the ICO. Well, actually, they haven't got a leg to stand on. This is ridiculous. So we're like, OK, we're plunging forward. Then what happens is it is one o'clock in the morning, the night before publication. And, I, and then we discover... Facebook have put out a press release in the middle of the night, British Times, saying, oh, we're kicking Cambridge Analytica off our platform. So they try right. to run a spoiler story. Right, right. <sighs> So we kind of... Sounds like them. (laughs) So Carol had a really tough year. I mean, you know, people don't realize the price that journalists pay for doing this. And she got fed in, especially for a speech she gave uh, at TED that she talked about this, where she made a plea to tech. um, And she got sued for that speech for someone Mm -hmm. else, you know. And a lot of these are nuisance lawsuits, essentially. Um, She made a... I don't know where that case stands right now, but the fact of the matter is she's... When she's poking the bear, the bear bites back. And so I think she was talking about, uh, about that issue and how easy it is to push back at her until it was published, and then they do their I'm so sorry tour. Mm-hmm. And so I think the price that it's paid, and Carol has a real point of view about this, which, you know, opens her up to being like you're te- biased against tech. But I think she's done a service for every consumer about what she exposed. And so what they try to do then is tear her down. It wasn't that big. It wasn't that big a deal. Whatever they were, mm-hmm. they, whatever their little argument mm-hmm. against her is. Right. I mean, I think it was what she accomplished with that research, that investigative piece was classic investigative journalism. And anyone who wants to know how, how the work that she did to bring that story to light should listen to that podcast. But it is so interesting, the power dynamics and what you uncovered in that interview was exactly that, the power dynamics between big tech and journalists and the side we don't often hear about, the stories that they would prefer don't make it to light. So I think that was just a really important public service that you did to get the behind the scenes stories from mm-hmm. her. What I really want to know is when is the Cambridge Analytica, like the behind the scenes reporting, is that going to be get like a spotlight treatment, like turned into a movie? I, I, I'm i not sure if it's quite cinematic enough to uh, yeah, be she's turned been into in, a movie. She's been in a lot of documentaries for sure. Yeah. I had, no, I, I had no idea she was sued for that. I was at that TED Spotlight yeah. talk mm-hmm. or that Ted's and what, what was the room like? Oh my God! I mean, everyone was gripped by it. Mm-hmm. She was yeah. um, calling, you know, calling people out. She was and she was playing, as you said, that mm-hmm. something has to change. And um, I was absolutely gripped by it. I thought it took a lot of courage to do that. Mm-hmm. That audience, that rich people audience, mm-hmm. where she was calling them out. Mm-hmm. I think she's. I think she's a a gem of a reporter, and I think. Um, it definitely took a personal toll, and you could read it and see it in this uh, thing because she became obsessed with it too, which often investigative journalists do that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so on the topic of people who are really speaking truth to power, um, one clip that I wanted to highlight was uh, from this interview you did this year with Tristan Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd been on the show before, back in, I think, 2017, yeah. when he had um, his first movement, Time Well Spent, um, which then led to all these changes in tech products about tech addiction. Um, but he came back this year 
to talk about a new movement he's trying to start called human downgrading. I don't really have a sense. I don't think this one may have caught on quite as well as Time Well Spent did. At least I don't hear people talking about it as much as they talked about that one. But I remember uh, I was in a studio, in the studio when this interview was happening. I was listening to this one live. And I remember my jaw hit the floor when he was really making his case. Um, He laid out this provocative analogy. And I hope people listen to him. Um, The the gist here is that tech companies are doing to all of us uh, what the fossil fuel industry is doing to the planet. Um, But his argument is that what they may be doing is even worse. The puppet that we've created can actually simulate a a version of its creator and know exactly what puppet strings to pull on the creator. So now we're all outraged. You know, look, take the kids example. You have kids who are now addicted to um, what they look like on social media because mm-hmm. uh, Snapchat promotes this beautification filter, right. basically rewarding you whenever you look different the way than you actually do. Like, the, it's never been easier to see that, that people only like you if you look different than you actually look. Right. Right? 55% of plastic surgeons um, reported seeing someone who wants to get plastic surgery to look like their Snapchat beautification filter. This is for teen girls. So this, if you don't know this, the beautification mm-hmm. filters in Snapchat, yeah. you know, they, they plump your eyes, your, mm-hmm. your cheeks, your lips. Yep. And so we're distorting people's identity. And when you realize that this is having a control over our social fabric, it's having a control over children's mental health, it's having control over our politics, it's having control over our elections, and people really haven't realized that technology is holding the pen of history right now. Like, so wh- we're not in control. When you when you think about all the d- different things, one of the things I you do get is that they're all working together, but not thinking of it at all mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. That, that that they don't think that each individual they're making a problem. It is like everyone getting a plastic like, bottle, everybody buying. The, like it, it it's cre- like climate change. I mean, they're, they're right. each. It's like you know, Facebook and YouTube are, are kind of Shell and Exxon, mm-hmm. and. You know, it, but it's worse though because they also own the satellites mm-hmm. about to, that can detect how much pollution is being created. Right. So it's a really important point: how much human downgrading is in polarization, or you know, um, anger is happening in each of these countries, like from Facebook. We don't know right. because guess who has who has the data? Well, you and I don't. Right? Who has the data? They're, they do. They do. So this is why you know we had this line of it's a living, breathing crime scene mm-hmm. in each of these elections. They they are the only ones who have the data. So it's like Shell and Exxon, where you create the pollution, but you privately profit. The harm shows up on the balance sheet of the society, and the only way that we're going to know what those harms are accurately is if we have access to the data. So it's as if Shell and Exxon own the observatory right. satellites. Right. 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 So. Clearly, from a regulatory perspective, this has to change. The easiest thing, though, to change, I mean, not that it's easy, but the thing that fundamentally has to change is that we're moving from an extractive attention economy that treats human beings as resources. As fuel. As fuel, right, mm-hmm. for our data, for our attention, to a regenerative attention economy where we just don't drill. I mean, we, why in the world would we say, let's profit off of the self-esteem of children? Yeah, I think what's interesting about Tristan, he's trying to take a, a thing that everybody did grip on, which was his time well spent, which is essentially about screen addiction. And that got, everyone got that, like, oh, yeah, my kids or me or whatever. And, you know, he wanted to make it more. And one of the things that I think that was critical, and there's a lot of really great quotes in this interview, was the idea that this is systemic. This is, th- these all are linked together. Right. That it's not just screen addiction. It's also uh, disinformation. It's also hacking. It's also health issues. It's also all uh, hatred. It's, 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 li- he wanted to bring, make it systemic rather than just one thing. And that, I think that was critical. And I think the idea of human downgrading while computers get upgraded 
is a really good analogy. I think it's much more profound than just uh, our, we're addicted to our and, screens. And just, and Eric, he's an expert, right? He was at Google. He was a UX yeah. designer, right? So he was on the inside and actually has a firsthand look at how the systems are being designed, which also makes it such a credible um account and him such a credible witness to what's happening. So that is also, yeah, super compelling. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, he was a UX designer and then he was, I think, in-house at Google, a design ethicist, um, which is just a fascinating idea to me. The idea that, you know, uh, for a time anyway, Google was willing to have someone on the payroll who was consciously thinking about these things. Um, Obviously, it didn't last and he decided to go off on his own. But, you know, I think that's something that I, I would like to see every one of these tech companies really leaning into is like... You can like, keep waiting there, Eric. Not, I know, I know. Design Pickering. ethics are really critical. It's like how you design something, whether it's a car or anything, is a really big deal. Like, you yeah. don't have seatbelts in it, people are going to die. And So I think the idea of consequences is another thing Tristan talks about, is that these have consequences far beyond our what we're, what we're thinking about. And one of the things that we know is we, another one of our themes this year is that Silicon Valley and tech doesn't do consequences well, or they don't anticipate consequences. And I think Tristan has been sort of this voice of uh, of trying to figure out how to improve that. And he's very interested in improving it. Like, how do you, what can you get these companies to do beyond like everybody use a gray screen? That's not an answer. It's just a, it's just a small. It's like like incremental. Let's, yeah, it's like let's pick up the beaches. Like let's pick up dirt the dirty beaches. Great, but the problem is why are the beaches dirty? Mm-hmm. And that's what he's doing at, the, at this movement, which is called the Center for Humane Technology. And the idea of humane is really important, as far as I'm concerned, and that you have a, a kindness in tech that they have to sort of start to start to add into things. And when you had all these like shootings in New in New Zealand that was captured by the killer. And then proliferate it, you can just see what happens. I'm all for more conversations about this, Kara. Good. The thing is, we want to talk about solutions. I think one of the things we've sort of pointed out, we don't want to just continue to be the tisk tiskers, although I enjoy that quite a bit. Um, but I think you have to really start to point out what are the solutions, who's doing things that are solution-based. And I think that's one of the focuses for 2020. Absolutely. We're here with Eric Anderson and Eric Johnson talking about the best moments on Recode Decode in 2019. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
www.ericsandersonmedia.com. We're here with Eric Anderson and Eric Johnson talking about our favorite moments from Rico Decode in 2019. I've got another one here, which is when I talked to Ken Burns, who I love, Ken Burns. He's the nicest man on the planet. We talked about another thing I love, which is country music and by the Mr. Hoot won yesterday on The Voice. What are we? What are you talking oh, about? I have no idea what that Jay means. Jay Hoot. Jay Hoot. And then Kelly Clarkson was his coach. Please don't. One of Kara's hobbies. One of my hobbies is country music. And so we talked. Smile done a, and nod, Erica. Smile he's, and nod. He's, he's, he's done a, uh, a documentary series called Country Music. Let's listen to what he has to say, and then I will discuss country music with you all in just a second. We tend to, for commerce, for convenience, for whatever it is, uh, to categorize everything into its own little silo. And then we, mm-hmm. we make it a, a separate island nation. Right, as the identity needed, essentially. As, as if you need some passport to get there. But country music is connected to the blues. It's connected to jazz. It's connected to R&B. It is with R&B, the parents of rock and roll. So it's connected to rock and to folk and to pop and to rap and to even classical music. And so it's all mixed in. There are no borders. Okay, so now Kara's going to take about 10 minutes to talk about country no, music. I will not. We're going to take a break. We're going to go get some coffee. We'll, we'll be back He when came she's on done. the show to talk about his newest documentary series, Country Music, which I loved. I loved hearing him talk about how he's using tech to get past his 40 years of work to help to reach more people online. One of the things uh, he's done is founded a digital platform called Unum, which lets people explore clips from his work without watching the entire thing. Here's a clip. As much as you think this moment is new, and it is completely new, it's informed by all the ghosts and echoes of an right. inexpressibly historical. wise past. Right. And the historical context That's what I mean. gives you the ability to look and see and understand with a slight bit of distance and maybe dispassion what's going on now. So it makes you, strangely, for all the just the horrible hell of human experience and all of the bad things we've done— it's also, and the implicit uh, pessimism of human nature doesn't change, meaning you don't get better. We, you can individually make a difference, and stuff mm-hmm. does happen, and dimes are moved just a little bit. It makes you optimistic. Now, back to country music, I think one of the things that we shared in common was our deep love of Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. uh, who was a big player in this, in this thing. And I think what, was, what I liked about this interview is that, that it, it's about what brings us together and what's the real history of, of country music, which really was born out of, of pain. It's born out, not just pain, just, you know, my trailer has been taken by a hurricane, not that kind of pain, but that it's born out of, like, the commonalities that we have as people. And it was a much more of a mix of different genres genres and people and and types of people. And I really, I like that. I think that's why I do like country music. There's something very beautiful about it um, that's not necessarily, there's, you know, pop country music is cooked just like the rest of, you know, pop music or things like that. But there's something really beautiful, and Ken and I really do understand it it's beautifully. A, it's an incredible art form. I have to yeah. say, I grew up listening to it with my dad, and there's a clear story in every song. Right. And as there is in much of music and art, but yeah, it's it's a it's a hist- it's a great American art form. So I'm glad you did this interview. Do you have a favorite country song, Eric Anderson um, and Eric Johnson? I like have- Patsy. I like Patsy Cline. Do you? Oh well, <laughs> a lot of lot of road trips with my dad All forcing right. me to listen Everybody to Patsy Cline. Patsy Cline. I can yeah. see why she's I, wonderful. What I'm about very you? basic. Carol. Yeah. What about you? That's sort of the vanilla of country music. But go ahead. I love her too. What a name. If you had asked me a couple months ago about favorite country music, I'd probably default to something by Johnny Cash. 
Nash, like Col- yeah. Colson oh, yeah. Prison Blues. Yeah. But just recently, I've been listening to that Dolly Parton podcast that yeah. WNYC is doing, and I'd never really listened to Dolly Parton music before, and <sighs> now I've just, I just, I just mm-hmm. bought like a best of album of, of her. Can of I her, just say, music. Dolly Parton, we want you on. I love Dolly Parton more than any person on the planet, and so I would love to have her on. Let me just tell you, I love Jolene, and I love, yeah. uh, I love all her stuff. The story. She- just so, and obviously she wrote, I will always love you. People oh don't realize that. Also, Elvis tried to buy that from her and she said no, no, which is an iconic story. She knew intuitively to hold on to her IP rights. She should. Decades ago. She but, did. I mean, what an, uh, yeah, she's she, brilliant. She, the, her, her, everyone thinks about her as sort of Dolly Parton and the character, but honestly, mm-hmm. as a songwriter and a oh. business person, yeah. she's amazing. She's and that's, that's why I would love to have Dolly Parton on the show. Dolly, if um, you're listening. My favorite country song, obviously, is Jesus Take the Wheel, <laughs> but I don't know why I like it so much. I shouldn't. There's all these amazing I definitely amazing cried things. to that a lot in high school. Which one? Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> We've all gone through depressing moments. <laughs> I love Jesus, take the yeah, wheel. Eric, can we cut out the Patsy Klein comment? I'm just really embarrassed now. <laughs> no, we cannot. <laughs> Patsy Klein is a Dad, great Dad, that's story. for you. All right, next. Next. Speaking of loudmouth ladies, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. This was my favorite, Kathy Griffin. So, speaking of influential media figures who everyone loves— um, or oh, Kathy, yeah, in Kathy's case. Um, I want to talk about Kathy Griffin. So she got a lot of flack for a photo shoot she did in 2017 where she posed with a fake severed head that looked like Donald Trump that had ketchup on it. And since then, her career has been totally changed, which is an understatement. And you, Kara, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Let's talk about the backstory. So sure. we were going to South by Southwest this year, and we were trying to figure out who you should interview on the main stage, which mm-hmm. is— you know, a big deal. And we were talking to the South by Southwest team. They're like, Kathy Griffin's coming, but I don't know if you want to interview her. And you and I were like, of course we want to interview her. (laughs) What an incredible story. And at that time, really, people hadn't, she hadn't really been in the media yet in terms of telling her story about what happened in 2017. She'd been canceled. She'd been canceled. She'd been totally canceled. Including by Anderson Cooper. You should be ashamed of yourself, Eric Yeah, totally. And so, we, um, yeah, we watched her documentary that she self-funded about the story called mm-hmm. One Hell of a Story. And um, we got a screener and Carrie, you watched it the night before the interview. And I just felt like it was an absolutely tremendous conversation it was. that covered so many topics from being in the line of fire with the Trump wood chipper, if you will, what it meant for people to um, yeah, cancel her. It's very the, the, serious. People thought, you know, she did make a lot of jokes or anything, but it was a very serious interview <laughs> about what happens to someone for a might, you know, a minor mistake. And by the way, Trump has done sixty worse. Things. She's become an expert in the First Amendment now. So yeah. whether you agree or disagree with the photo that she uploaded, what an interesting case study of what's happening in, in American media and politics right now. And I just learned so much from it. And I, after that interview, Kara, you know, a testament to you, like she and to her story, of course, like everyone interviewed her after that. It yeah. just opened up the floodgates for her to come back and tell her story. And I do think it's just one of the most important things. The other thing I loved about it is, Kara, she gave you a lot of shit. And she did <laughs> try to steal you your phone midway through the interview. She was like, give me your phone. I want to text Jack Dorsey. And <laughs> Let's like, in that clip. Let's like, play God, it. This is great content. Well, first of all, we have to get more people in elected positions that know what social media is and know it how it works. Yeah. Because, right. yeah. yeah. So they don't know the questions to ask. And I thought Zuckerberg's testimony was frightening. I mean, seriously, those BDIs, I know it's a joke. That's not human. So I don't necessarily think he's real. He is. I, he's, oh, come on. He is. You sure? Have yes. you seen blood or is it ice? <laughs> I've seen it. All right. Remember when, on summer, when he annoyed a bunch of normal people and went to the house for dinner and thought it was a big treat for them? Can you imagine? 
Knock, knock. It's me, Jeff Zuckerberg. Okay. Mark Zucker. Get your, oh, sorry, Mark. I'm thinking of Jeff Zucker. I have residual anger for But I wouldn't even let him in. I'd be like, get the fuck out, you fucking cheater. Because I actually think they are as complicit or rather responsible right. for manipulating worldwide elections. Right. You know, I mean, worldwide. Right. So... The idea that Nazism is on the rise in Germany, where, as you know, it was the only European country I know of where it was at least technically illegal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Poland is now an autocracy. And even Turkey. even um, uh, Italy is getting kleptocracy. And so I, I blame them for all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I was in um, London a month ago where I gave a speech on the First Amendment at Oxford University. <laughs> oh, fuck off. They're like, this is, you guys are like this. Went there. <laughs> yawn, yawn. I didn't even go to college. That's a big deal for me. It I is. Went to high Everybody, Oxford. <laughs> oh, now, now you're talking down to me. So anyway, um, one of the reasons I, I am here is uh, obviously I was the first of many. But I mean, if they're stripping John Brennan of his fucking security clearance, they will stop at nothing. And you know, my story is uh, unique in that I did and do have the means to defend myself. But I've also met many, many people. As you know, the, this inaugural had more protesters actually arrested and put in jail mm -hmm. than any other inaugural. Yep. So those folks gotta, you know, show up for a trial. They gotta pay for hopefully legal fees and because you need a lawyer in those situations and so that's one of the reasons I want to get the message out is right. it really is not a showbiz story it's all fields mm -hmm. and that's where I also think there's the ageism sexism misogyny tie-in mm -hmm. so I think um, you know the more younger electeds we get that can talk about unionizing um, you know indigenous women women that are forgotten women that have been incarcerated getting people that have been incarcerated the right to vote when they get out mm -hmm. stuff like that so I think the other thing about that clip is just the fact that she's emblematic of the way that everyone needs to there is seems to be getting more political whether they want to or not like she has to be paying attention to the politics and has to be paying attention to and, and also more technical she has to be paying attention to the leadership of these social media companies when i assume mm -hmm. that previously someone of in her line of work she was celebrities she did a lot of celebrities yeah right they, she probably wouldn't have cared who the ceo of twitter was and now she has a very strong vested interest and she she in that interview she she's you know sharply critiquing Jack Dorsey by name. Um, I thought that was that was really fascinating that she really um, has done the homework on these people and that and, oh, yeah. she and she's holds become them a responsible. very funny person to me. She sends me all kinds of rude messages she all does. the time, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Uh, I, I was going to read one right now in a second. Well, she just... is. It was also a privilege to get to know her because she is such a talented comedian. I think people should really listen to that. And I do think we should be looking, Kara, obviously, as you encourage us to, looking for those stories of people who um, are on the outside of popular culture, but, you know, have an important story to tell. Yeah, exactly. She kept insinuating that I was your girlfriend, Kara. <laughs> I was like, Kathy, this is not appropriate and not true. <laughs> She's like, can you get your lesbian lover to do something for me? And I'm like, what the world? This is a note she sent to me. Hello, Mrs. Swisher. My name is Bathy Briffin. I am Mr. Jack Dorsey's new executive assistant. Today is my first day on the job, and I can't believe it, but I lost his cell phone number. Would you mind sending it to me right away? I don't mean to impose, but I would like to keep my job, and I don't have to go back to living in a hollowed-out Tesla that I found by the side of the 
the road is up to you, of course. It's great to meet you. And then she sent another one. Miss Swisher, this is Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. I just happened to be in Tracy, California for the funeral today and was wondering if Mr. Zuckerberg, Miss Sandberg, and Mr. Dorsey had time to go to Nation's Pie Shop and Burger Joint, which is practically Silicon Valley, when you think about it. And just talk about some ideas I have since I am Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. Please forward their phone numbers. Thank you. <laughs> She She sent me those every week. We need to do a show with her at Vox Media. We yeah. need to do something. Yeah, Wait, exactly. is she, she's just texting this to you privately, or is this tweets? Or this is, how no, is she she's th- texting. She's DMing me. Um, and then when I was doing <laughs> Amy Klobuchar, this is the last one. Sorry, Kathy, but there's well, so This could be funny. a whole segment, by this the way. Yeah, Let great. me just say, this was so good. She was. I was interviewing Amy Klobuchar at South by Southwest last year, right at the time. And this is before I even met her. And and she goes, and this was when Amy Klobuchar was in trouble for the comb and the salad yep, and the yep. be- misbehaving of their staff. And she goes, you know what? That is This whole thing is such Hillary Clinton-level bullshit. Big deal she threw a binder at someone. I'd fire an assistant who brought me the salad without utensils as well. Maybe that assistant would be happier working for Mark Meadows. Amy Klobuchar never pulled her vagina out in front of the coworker or support, and I can guarantee you that. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> I'm saving my fire for Jack Dorsey. Uh, I'm not going to say anything else. Love, Kathy Griffin, your new best friend. Oh, anyway, man. it's been a great relationship. I think Kathy Griffin deserves and she's very funny, too, by the way. Yep, yep. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Eric, next one. Yeah, I want to bring in another guest from the media world, and that's your old friend Barry Diller, mm-hmm. uh, the chairman of IAC. Kara, you, you know Barry super well, and you two just had this immediate chemistry, this really funny, sharp rapport. Covered a huge range of topics in just over an hour. I was I was looking back at the episode, and I was like, oh my God, there is so much here. Uh, but what I want to focus in on is what he said about Netflix. When I'm not producing your podcast, I'm an obsessive movie fan. Yes. And he made this really interesting claim that I think turned a lot of heads uh, among, among our audience, which is that Hollywood is now irrelevant. Netflix has won this game. There, I mean, short of some existential event, it is Netflix's. No one can get, I believe, to their level of subscribers, uh, which gives them real dominance. They can outbid and do and they do anyone right and they will continue to do so right they did they just got ryan murphy they got shonda rhimes they got well, yeah, but they 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 will outbid anyone because they have the platform to be able to do so that so what happens then in hollywood then what happens in hollywood now what is it how do you look at it when you look hollywood, at hollywood? is now irrelevant okay. i mean it has nothing explain it may, that's a big statement explain it is it look it will make and continue to make programming. Right. Clearly. And that is was one of its functions. But what happened to the entertainment business since the early, you know, 100 years ago is that the, basically, let's start with radio. Radio, essentially, was dominated by NBC, CBS, and as the decades went on, they were able to, because the hegemony was complete, they were then able to get into television. Then they were able to get into the cable business. Then they were able to get into all these businesses, all of which, not that they founded them, but when they got big enough, they would buy them. So right. little Warner Brothers studio bought Time Inc., which bought was had HBO, and CBS, which actually you know, was the leader in news. It wasn't CBS that started 24-hour cable news, but it was Ted Turner who eventually got bought by Warners. So it was 
th- th- these six movie companies, essentially, were able to extend their hegemony into everything else. Right. Didn't matter that they started it. When it got big enough, they got to buy it. Right. Okay? For the first time, they ain't buying anything. Mm-hmm. Meaning, they're not buying Netflix. They are not buying Amazon. No, they're not. <laughs> and consequently, their relevancy in the world. In other words, it used to be if you could get your hands on a movie studio, you were sitting at a table with only six other people, five other people. Right. And so that table dominated media worldwide. That's over. Right. So when you ask about Hollywood, that's what connoted, connoted, yeah. connotes Hollywood, right. which is that that era is over. Do you agree with that? Do you, do you think yes. that Hollywood is I, no I think, longer relevant? I think this is a guy that is sort of of Hollywood. He was the mogul. He's, you know, he did, people don't realize this, but he did the Tuesday movie of the week. You don't remember this as young people. Nope. I have but no idea. But it was a big deal. It was a big event on television as there was a special movie of the week. And so Barry really understood, like, event making in television. He did, oh, so many. He started uh, Fox. Like, mm-hmm. he started all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so he's been around for so much really interesting creation of amazing television and stuff and movies. And, and I don't think he does movies as much. But And then he started IAC. And I met him super early on when he was really interested in the Internet. Um, and very few Hollywood people were because he, he saw, he invested in uh, uh, the shopping, the home shopping network and, and different things. BuzzFeed? Uh, no, I don't think he was there. But he, th- this was a long time. He was, he was riveted by commerce at the time. And I thought that was really interesting. And I, he had me out to visit him and talk about the Internet, which was nobody was The only other person that was even slightly interested was, was Bob Iger from Disney. And he was, a, he was not even at the top of Disney at the time. And so I, was, I always really appreciated his curiosity toward things. And obviously, you know, he knows a lot of where things are going. And I think he, he did understand that Hollywood wasn't moving fast enough to understand this. And one of my favorite quotes of his was one that we did at all, either All Things D or the Code Conference where he said, it's amazing— that the children in Hollywood have any teeth, they're so inbred. It was such a mean comment. But (laughs) (laughs) something like that. It was, like, amazing. And he was right that they were not, just like Silicon Valley is inbred, they were very inbred and they were not seeing what was coming. And Barry really did pick his head up very early and understood the threat and the promise of the Internet. And I thought that was, you know, unusual for someone who has sort of benefited quite a bit from the old media world. I think that takes a lot of humility. Yeah, to be someone at the top of your game, but to say yeah, he's also else. he's also someone who loves to say naughty things, like to make people you know he's so witty and funny. He's a very sharp guy, and so he loves to do that. And so I hope to interview him again. I, I've just talked to someone; he's involved in something really interesting um, around content again. And so you're not going to see you know he's he's sort of at the end of his career, but he's really not. He's such mm. a curious and interesting person. I don't ever count him out. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with more of our favorite moments from Recode Decode 2019. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. 
Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. We're here with Eric Anderson and Eric Johnson talking about our favorite moments from Recode Decode in 2019. We're in the final stretch now. And for my final clip, I want to talk about one of the liveliest interviews we ran on Recode Decode this year. And that's my live conversation with Anand Girgardos. Anand wrote a book, Winners Take All, and has been an outspoken critic of the way billionaires use philanthropy to, in his words, cover up the damage they've done to society. Here is a clip. Mark Zuckerberg, as far as I understand it, wanted to like find, you know, build a social network to help people at Harvard meet each other. Mm -hmm. He ended up being the most dangerous person in the world. And now, incidentally, as a byproduct of that, gets to have thoughts about how public schools are in America. Mm -hmm. You know, they have tech companies in Germany. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody in the German education ministry is curious about the thoughts of German social networking CEOs mm -hmm. about education. Right. They're allowed to exist. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I think Mark Zuckerberg should legally be allowed to have thoughts about ed education. I just don't think they should have any more weight than he is able to express through voting every two or four years. Right. So, nonetheless, he comes with him quite a lot of cash. And I think a lot of... Go through New, what happened here in Newark. It was a huge announcement. It was on Oprah. It was on every... It was everywhere about that he was giving this money. Cory Booker was right in there with him, um, who's running for president. He, I'm going to give this much money to fix schools in Newark. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's Newark donation was in some ways modeled after another great philanthropist, Christopher Columbus, um, who also decided to change a place without having been there before um, and didn't seem to know much about, kind of saw it as a blank slate. Right. Which was more it's his own mess. blankless mess. Yeah. projected onto right. what he found. And so Mark Zuckerberg, having never been to Newark, mm -hmm goes on Oprah, makes this announcement, going to transform Newark. And, and $100 million, right? And by all accounts, it literally did nothing. The money disappeared. I mean, it just, it did nothing. And what is so remarkable about that is how obvious it is. This is the whole reason that we transitioned over hundreds of years out of feudalism to democracy. We have actually, this, this thing is not new that they're trying to do. It's old. This is a re-feudalization of, a, like, if you watch Downton Abbey, mm -hmm. 
You understand the idea there's a guy in a castle and then no one else owns land in the show. And anytime the people who don't own land get like a weird idea about how maybe they should own stuff too, they die in a car accident. Okay. And then, you know, and, and, every, and, and the rich people are nice, but it's they're in charge mm-hmm. of how the help works. They're in charge of shaping the society through their kindness, through their generosity. Mm-hmm. And this is the Zuckerberg model. And now, uh, you know, it, it extends, he, he's trying to get rid of all the world's diseases as mm-hmm. if public education is the hard enough problem. You know, and I just think, how remarkable. We have doctors. He may not be aware of them, but we have some. His mm-hmm. wife is one. Um, we have an entire public health infrastructure. We have the Centers for Disease Control. We have the NIH. But no, Mark is going to get rid of all the diseases, even though his own company is a plague. Mm-hmm. Okay. By any <laughs> okay, that was a stretch of the imagination. Um, I really love the fact that Anand basically talks in sound bites. Like mm-hmm. that's a skill. He does. That, that's he I, does. I, I, I don't I don't mean to demean. That's not an insult. That is a very impressive skill. The fact that every sentence he says is like a one liner. Yeah. Yep, he was, he's got a point of view. And I think one of the things that I love, the best, my favorite part is this idea that he's bringing uh, that why should we, you know, we take this money from these billionaires, like, oh, they're going to give money to charity, they're going to do this, but they pick the charity, they pick how mm-hmm. they do it, they pick the advantage they get, and why don't we just tax them and we decide? And I think that that's like everyone, when he says it, everyone's like, oh, yeah, why are we so beholden to these yeah. r- r- people? These Why do they have, why does... After that happened, I think I saw Mark Zuckerberg at something, and we were talking about education. I was like, what do you know about education? Why do you know more about education than, like, our educators? Like, it was I, I, it was really, it got me in this mood of why are we taking their word for it on anything unless they're experts? Are you an expert in this? And I think that's what I really liked about this, getting into your head that why are they better than us because they're wealthier? And, of course, lots of Silicon Valley people, you know, we talked recently on Pivot with Scott Galloway as he's getting attacked by a lot of people, and one of their arguments is, we're richer than you are and and calling him a moron and I'm like make an argument about your thing don't just say I'm rich and therefore I'm right and I, I like that about Anand I think there's like the whole culture of like I'm rich therefore I must be smart I mean this is something that you know very well from, from talking to tech people all mm-hmm. the time but I, I think there's this really uh, nasty conflation of the two things when they can be as we know completely irrelevant from one another. All right. So we would be remiss if I didn't talk about, Kara, you had many interviews with 2020 presidential candidates um, who came on Rico Decode, including Marianne Williamson, Tom Steyer, Michael Bennett, Andrew Yang, Pete Buttigieg, and one of the candidates who has since dropped out, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. And I thought you and Bill had a really great back and forth about Amazon's aborted plans to build an HQ2 in New York City after receiving a lot of concessions from the city. But what I really loved about this interview was that he you know, he dropped out a few days later. Um, we knew he wasn't going to be the Democratic nominee, but you just did an outstanding interview with him, both about why he was running and then also just about being a mayor of the, mm-hmm. you know, one of the largest cities in the world. The kind of what he's thinking about in terms of like mobility and how he kind of got played by playing. Amazon, which was my my favorite disclosure. So we'll listen to that now. If I said to you and you're running a town, you're running a, a, a state, and I said, I've got 25,000 to 40,000 jobs and billions of dollars of tax revenue so you could do what you need to with schools or mass transit and all, no one is going to say, no, I'm not interested. It's just not possible. Why give the world's richest man and the world's company that doesn't pay very many taxes right. anything? to come to somewhere. Because the rules of the game are broken. Because, and I actually think what this dredges up is a need for a federal standard that inhibits companies from demanding subsidy. Mm -hmm. 
of any stage of localities, because right now it's this massive race to the bottom all over the country. I'm not going to tell you for a moment that we could ignore it, mm-hmm. right? Say, hey, you know, that that's that's screwed up, so we're going to let 25,000 jobs go. Yeah. No, that's not the real world. What I think we could have done in retrospect was say, this process creates so many pitfalls that we're going to offer them an alternative process. Mm-hmm. And then we would find out, bluntly, how much they needed to be in New York. But even that doesn't get to the rub here, which is community residents raised valid concerns. I didn't agree with all of them, but they raised some valid concerns. And we were trying to address those valid concerns, and we were pushing Amazon to address those valid concerns, and then, bang, we get a phone call and they're gone. Were you surprised by that? I was. Sh- I wasn't for a second. How are you not surprised because by that? Because he's like that. Because if you know him, he's— uh, I don't enough. know him, uh, and he never deigned care. to come among no, us. No, of course that—well, he, he's not going to deign to come among many people anymore right. since he's the world's richest man. But because they're like that. They're like, forget you. Like, I don't need you. I can go in somewhere else. Look, uh, well, you said, when that call came in, explain that to me. What happened? It was a call from one of the senior folks who I had come to know, mm-hmm. and it was like, hey, we've reconsidered and we're not going to be here. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> you know what? Because I had had conversations yeah. with the same yeah. person a few days earlier. you thought there earlier. was still a deal to be had. No, it was a deal had been but, struck. Right, right, right. And we were talking about how to but address— you were getting pressure from AOC and the, and the community. And, uh, you know, again, pressure in my job, don't, right. don't overestimate pressure. Right. When you run a city of 8. 6 million people, as I say, 8.6 million highly opinionated people, you're going to have pressure all the time. No, we had a deal. Polling, not an insignificant issue, consistently showed a clear majority of New Yorkers believe the deal was good. They could count. They wanted a whole lot of jobs. A whole lot of young people wanted tech jobs. A whole lot of folks who were coming out of our city university system wanted that opportunity. Parents wanted it for their kids. Where was it popular? Communities of color and working class people because they saw opportunity for themselves. Mm -hmm. Where was it unpopular? With folks who had done better, God bless them, but they had done better and saw it as problematic. And obviously folks in the immediate area who were concerned about development. That's perfectly fair. But there was not actually a single day where this was a unwanted thing by most people in the city. Mm -hmm. And we had a deal and they announced it with us. And the changes and improvements we were talking about were absolutely reachable things. There was nothing that was so difficult for them to do. So, like, the whole thing to me, uh, maybe maybe we should have consulted with you and you could have said, they, these guys, they're, you know, they are not going to respect anyone. and They're going to walk away and they can't take any pressure. I probably had one stupid assumption, which is if you formed one of the biggest companies in the world, you could handle some pushback Why and some, you, you know— no, I'm saying I think you generally would say if you built something big, it came with some strife and some disagreement so we can deal with it. But no, what we found with Amazon is no sense. We, I don't think anyone thought they had social conscience, so mm-hmm. that was not an issue. They didn't. But no sense of even keeping to a deal, no standards, no rules. And I said that they confirmed everyone's worst assumptions about corporate America. Mm-hmm. That's How what do you they think it came end. out of that? Not. You know what? You could say, oh, you know, reputational impact. I just can't get lost in that. Mm-hmm. We There was a competition. Again, maybe stupidly we accepted the notion of a competition. Mm-hmm. We won the competition. Mm-hmm. And then they walked away. Mm-hmm. Where am I supposed to feel bad about Did winning a competition? Did you think about calling them again and saying, Oh, we tried. Say. We tried to say, can we understand what the issue is here? But it was so total, mm-hmm. there was nothing to be talked about. 
Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is now, uh, obviously, since then, Amazon's locating thousands of people here in New York City. But, of course, as we've talked about, they want to be in New York City. Everybody wants mm-hmm. to be in New York City. And they didn't have to do these big gimmies. And I think just like uh, cities do with sports teams, it's the same thing. But at least you get a sports team there. Like here, <laughs> it's questionable what you get. And so I think doing these deals with the richest people in the world, like if they want to come to New York, pay to come to New York kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, I, you know, in, in terms of creating jobs, you know, they don't need it. Like maybe— Maybe if you're somewhere in a city that that doesn't have a lot of economic growth, I can see doing certain things for, for companies. But why do they even demand it? If their business is good enough, they should be able to pay their way. And, mm-hmm. and getting these extra gimmies and extra things without giving back to the city. And as you've seen in San Francisco and other places, they don't give back enough. And look what yeah. happens. And yeah, so yeah. to me, that's the biggest deal. Kara, what were your other highlights from the interviews you did with presidential candidates? What do you um, remember? What sticks out? I, I did like the, with the Bill de Blasio when I said you should drop out. <laughs> like, and then he did two days later. You probably like, knew why he was are we pretending? What I like about my coverage is that I'm not a political reporter. And so I don't talk like political. I don't do horse racy. I just am like a regular voter kind of mentality. I'm like, why are you running? You're dropping out, right? And like none of those, they all do this pretend kabuki bullshit that I think is just exhausting. I really liked And also they tend to mock people like I two people, Marion Williamson and Andrew Yang. Before we did interviews mm-hmm. with both Andrew Yang they would make fun of him. And I know Andrew Yang, and I know him to be a really smart guy with interesting ideas. Now, look, he's probably not going to be the president. He's not. In fact, he's not. Why am I pretending? But his ideas are worthy of discussing. And so I did an interview with him, a live interview at Manny's, actually, in San Francisco. And afterwards, everyone's like, I had no idea he was so smart. I'm like, look, why don't you stop taking your what you know about people through the political press and start to listen to what they have to say? And that's not to say they get to say anything they want, because I gave him a tough interview, but it was, I let him discuss his ideas, mm-hmm. and we had a cogent discussion about his ideas. Same thing with Marianne Williamson, who people take, they, she's easy to snark at, especially, I'm sorry to say this, but white male political reporters just literally can't understand someone talking about empathy. And in this day and age, when everyone talks about hate, I want to hear her. Now, look, again, not going to be president, but her messages, they're not so crazy. You know what I mean? And by the way, she's like, like every other candidate, she's got hair on her that's not good. Some of the things she may have done are anti-vax. And we talked about that. But she deserves to be listened to. Um, same thing with Michael Bennett, another um, another. They're uh, all candidate. representations of something that's happening in American mm-hmm. culture. And I right. did love your interview with Marion Williamson, too, because there was so much criticism going into it. But you similarly, like, didn't approach it like a political reporter. So therefore, she let her guard yeah. down. She actually talked to you. And um, that's what I think makes it such yeah, a unique Pete conversation. Yeah, Judge was interesting. I found him hard to accept. I found I didn't quite know why he was running, and that was my impression of him afterwards. I think if, I'd like to do an interview with him again because mm-hmm. I think my first question was like, I still don't understand why you're running. I don't. I don't quite get it. And mm. so I think that awkwardness now is being seen with African-American communities, his, his lack of connection there. And I just don't know. And I would like to know more. I, I'd like to know more about his motivation other than he's a really good, hardworking guy who's worked his way up with his right. shirt sleeves. Right. It's a big jump from yeah. mayor of South Bend to yeah. president. Well, he speaks 20 languages. So, I mean, that's like I'm a single issue voter. And my single issue is my my candidate must be able to speak 20 languages. So. <laughs> what did you think about that? You think we do too much politics, Eric? Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I, 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 I The thing is, like, I agree with back to what you're saying about Marion Williamson is I do get fed up with the horse race coverage of a lot of these candidates and a, a lot of the, you know, who's up, who's down sort, sort of thing. It is great to have a podcast where we can have an hour long substantive conversation. I mean, yeah. that really matters a lot to me is like, let's take a breath and let's just talk to this one person for an hour 
and let's not immediately jump to commercial or jump to a reaction to what do you think of Trump's tweet. Um, I, I'm very anti. I don't watch any of the political TV, cable news stuff. Um, and like the, the podcasts are like the, the complete opposite of that. And I, I love it. You know what you don't have going for you, Kara, I have what? to say is, you're no Joe Rogan. There are no bong rips in the middle of our show. <laughs> How do you know? Um, no, 2020, uh, I, New Year's resolution. Yeah, no, no, we're not. No, people. Uh, you know, who do we want to have? In the, we want, obviously, Elizabeth Warren, who I've interviewed before. I do want to talk to Kamala Harris because I do think she'll yeah. be yes. someone's VP running mate. Um, yeah. Joe Biden has not. We have not gotten Joe we Biden Chloe yet. Bichar, but, obviously, we talked about her earlier. Oh, Joe yeah. Biden. How do you think? I don't think Joe Biden's going to sit with me. I don't know. I, I had a conversation last night with some people who um, are pretty in, on the inside, and they think he's going to end up being the nominee. Yeah. Um, we got to get Joe Biden. And that he will pick, hopefully, like a woman of color to be his running yeah. mate. Yeah. So, All right. Joe Biden's on the list. Anybody yep. else? Are we, who that, that's Corey true. Booker? You talked to Stacey Abrams this year, and I she did. could well be, yeah, someone's yep. running mate. Yep. We're going to try to get to all of them. Yeah. Probably over Kamala, because Kamala, remember she had that zinger? I mean, she said— She's a good on the internet. She's yeah. good on the Twitter. She critiqued him during that debate. What about Trump, people? Oof. We gonna, do we want Trump? Yes, we do, right? Yeah. I think you need to—I think 2020 is the year of care interviewing President Trump, the Pope— Pope. <laughs> the Pope. Well, the Pope. We need to talk to the Pope you just about want to science go to Rome. and technology. Yes, I, I mean, I've been to Rome. I agree. We should interview the Pope. Okay, <laughs> we'll go to Rome. We'll have an enjoyable meal. We'll all come back. But listen to me. We'll interview the Pope. But uh, but uh, but Trump. I think we really should try to. I mean, literally. Why would he sit down with me? Absolutely. But I mean, have we made not? the ask? We need to make the ask. We, I have, but we'll yeah. keep making it. He needs to talk about Silicon Valley. I do attack his press secretary quite a bit on Twitter. Maybe I should stop. I doing think the that. angle ends. I think you just need to ask Rudy Giuliani because he clearly does not <laughs> have the president's best interest at heart. He will. <laughs> say yes to anything. That's so just true. ask Rudy. Rudy will say yes. We'll do the podcast him. next week. My friend Olivia Nuzzi at <laughs> the New York Magazine Eric. has his cell phone number and did a great piece on his texting. Yeah. So yeah. I, let's get Rudy friggin' Giuliani on here. Rudy, you look good. <laughs> really. You're very handsome. You don't look a day over 110. You're very virile. You're very virile. Anyway. I do think it'd be a great conversation, yeah. Rudy. Oh, Rudy. As, as the diplomatic one oh here. Oh, my God. Rudy, it'll be a great conversation. Come on. Come on. Yeah. We're sweethearts. Give you a chance to yeah, say a, your side. Say your side. We want to hear from you, Rudy Giuliani. Anyway, Eric, are we going to wrap up? Yeah, well, before we wrap up, I want to talk about one of my favorite parts of producing Recode Decode. So, obviously, we put a lot of time and energy into this podcast every week. And like I was just saying, I'm super proud of the fact that this is a substantive show, that these are, you know, interviews where you learn something in every episode. However... Maybe the most fun part of making Recode Decode is that I have permission to make fun of Kara Swisher every week, yes. uh, sometimes three times a week, um, because I get to write the fake titles that she uses at the top of the show. Um, and so before we headed out, I just wanted to play a montage of some of our favorites <laughs> from this year. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the Maria Curie of tech journalism. Getting close to this stuff will probably kill me, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone with advice for any Star Wars fan in an unhappy marriage. May divorce be with you. You may know me as the author of a self-help book that teaches you how to overcome your addiction to buying self-help books. You may know me as the creator of the only exercise program you can do in your web browser, Tabs of Steel. You may know me as someone who's writing a voting machine virus that will change every American's votes to Boris Johnson. You may know me as someone who thinks Donald Trump only likes trade wars because his hands are too small to win a thumb war. You may know me as someone who can't stand cow impersonators. It's all fake moves. You may know me as someone with a foolproof investing strategy, or at least it will be foolproof after I win the Powerball. Oh, Eric, what is going on? You may know me as the founder of a dental hygiene marketplace called Flossier. <laughs> That's funny. That's a funny. 
Anyway, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Rico Decode. You may know me as the founder of the Swisher Diet. I eat what I want, and if you have a problem with that, you can bite your tongue. You may know me as someone who does the Megan Rapino victory pose every time I send a good tweet. You may know me as someone who's voting for a Canadian invasion of the U.S. in 2020. You may know me as the new host of the Antiques Roadshow spinoff where we appraise the value of old internet memes. You may know me as someone who hopes Tim Cook runs for president against Donald Trump. That way we can finally compare apples and oranges. You may know me as someone who would run for president just to prove that I'm more popular than Bill de Blasio. You may know me as someone with a great apocalypse survival plan, which is to break into Peter Thiel's bunker in New Zealand and steal it. You may know me as the person trying to fool facial recognition sensors with increasingly silly sunglasses. You may know me as the founder of a platform for mafia dons called Snitch Fix, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Eric, that was the worst joke you've ever made Thank so you. far. Eric, I love these. I laugh out loud, and Kara, I think you do too, but you're yes. such a creative, you're such a good writer. And, you are. Um, They're I don't wonderful. Know how, you, do you, how, what, how do you get your inspiration for yeah. this? Uh, my main thing is I look at what the guest is doing. I kind of take my inspiration from whoever the guest is for that episode. Um, so, you know, uh, that's the number one thing. But the number two, if the guest, did, if there's nothing especially funny about what they do, then I just tend to go on Twitter and just look at what people are talking about. So my personal favorite, I think, from, from this year was, um, you may know me as someone who is converting all my money into Facebook's cryptocurrency just as soon as hell freezes over. <laughs> and that was just my, that was just my gut take to like looking at Twitter when people were first talking about Libra. And I was just like, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. And so I just turned that into Kara's voice. That yeah. was excellent. That was great. They're very we good. And it. keep them coming, Eric. They're very funny. And Thank I don't you. reject, I reject like one out of 20. You've, you rejected one. What did you reject this year? I don't you rejected know. one. Oh, there, there, there's, there's oh, some real bad Russia. ones where I just oh, could so not come up with anything. It. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, thank you, Eric and Erica. You may know me as someone who loves my producers <laughs> for coming on the show. And, and you can continue making fun of me. Uh, they am perfect. The fact of the matter is it's very, going to be very hard as I get more perfect. It's true. Oh, yeah, that one was serious. Myself. That one wasn't a joke, of course. Yeah, of course. yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, happy holidays. And here's to a better and bigger 2020. We're going to lean into solutions. We're going to have cool people. Rudy Giuliani, we love you. We Big kisses. <laughs> big kisses from us. We have cigars and a lot of liquor. I'm sure that will attract you here. <laughs> anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Erica, where can people find you online? Erica America. And Eric? Hey, hey, ESJ. All right. And he also has great movie stuff. It's absolutely true. He's a big movie buff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read a newsletter with movie reviews. Follow me on Twitter. I'll link to it there. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Cool. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. We'll be taking Wednesday off for New Year's Day, but I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. <laughs>